0: Hello, and welcome again to another conservative historian podcast, this one entitled True Believers in History. The date, December 2021, and my name is Bell Avis. In an account written by the LA Times in 1999, the story revolved around one Herbert Gregg, quote, Russian security forces rescued an American missionary Tuesday, more than seven months ago after he was kidnapped near Russia's lawless and separatist republic of Chechnya. Herbert Gregg, 51, a native of Mesa, Arizona, appeared gaunt but cheerful as he deplained here in the late evening after leaving the region. I feel wonderful, he said, managing his smile behind a full beard he had grown in captivity. His right hand was wrapped in a bandage. You see, his kidnappers had cut off part of his index finger, to extort ransom. Greg was one of the last Westerners and the only American believed held captive in Chechnya, which fought a 21-month war to secede from Russia earlier this decade. Greg was abducted on November 11th after playing basketball at an orphanage in Makachala, the capital of the Republic of Dagestan. The Republic borders Chechnya in Russia's southern Caucasus region, Greg and his wife, Linda, had lived and worked in Dagestan for four years. Greg was a missionary with the Evangelical Alliance Mission, known as TEAM, a Christian organization based in Wheaton, Illinois, that places charity workers and religious instructors worldwide. Asked what message he would like to send his captors, Greg said only that God really loves them. Unquote. Fueled by a genuine belief in his faith, this attitude is what we once would celebrate and call character. Greg preached forgiveness, and as a true believer, lived his convictions. Frankly, I wish I were made of such emotional sinew, but alas, my initial instinct would have been to let the Migs have their way with these people. Forget an eye for an eye, I probably would have gone for a body, or, well, several, for my finger. Hopefully not. But I have never been in such a position and given my life choices, decades of marketing and now history blogging from a comfortable office, likely never will. Greg is just different, but also different from other Christian leaders of greater notoriety as we shall see later. By putting his life in mortal peril, Greg follows a well-worn path established by early Christian leaders returning to the religion's inception. The first three leaders of the church, Jesus, Peter, and Paul of Tarsus, died by murder, and that was just the beginning. According to the Loyola Press, quote, for almost the entire period from CE 100 to 313, it was illegal to be a Christian most of the Roman Empire. As a result, there are many stories of the deaths of Christians that have come down to us over the centuries. These Christians who died for their faith were and still are called martyrs, a word that means witnesses. St. Lucy, St. Agnes, St. Agatha, and St. Cecilia were all young women who all suffered terribly for their faith at different times. The stories that have come down to us say that St. Lucy lost her eyes during her torture, St. Agnes was beheaded, St. Agatha was placed on hot coals, and St. Cecilia was suffocated and then beheaded. St. Timothy and St. Mora were married only 20 days when Timothy, who was in charge of the sacred books of his Christian community, was ordered to turn them over. He refused, and his wife Mora was brought to the prison to try to convince him to give in. She wouldn't cooperate, so both husband and wife were nailed to a prison wall, and so tradition tells us it took them nine days to die. Saint Marcellinus was a priest imprisoned during the last major Roman persecution around C.E. 304. While in prison before his execution, he convinced many of the love of Jesus, including his own jailer. Unquote. Because of the distance of time in their celebration of the Catholic Church, including canonization, as we just saw from the transcript from Loyola, it is hard to grasp that these were real people who willingly died for their beliefs. And the precedent was set from the very beginning. In all of the great religions, ranging from Hinduism to Buddhism, Confucianism, Judaism, and Islam, there was only one where the religion's founder was murdered for his belief. A highly effective Arab military proselytized Islam, Confucianism quickly became the state religion. Judaism's origins are more difficult to discern and dispersed among many leaders, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and ultimately to Moses, all of whom died in their beds. Jesus gave what Lincoln called the last full measure of devotion. Now, I want to clarify that this is not a piece proselytizing Christianity, nor any other religion. This is a historical podcast, and this content should be seen through that prism. But that does not change the fact that the early Christians were true believers. That is not necessarily the case throughout Christian history. Cyril of Alexandria appears to have been a rigid bigot who also died in his bed. And during my lifetime, I have witnessed the machinations of Oral Roberts, Jimmy Swaggart, Kenneth Copeland, Jimmy and Tammy Faye Baker, and Bill Hybels of Willow Creek fame a megachurch 20 minutes from my door. These figures all had three things in common. They all professed to be leaders in the Christian faith. They all got exceedingly wealthy and powerful through their ministries, and they were all as corrupt as any sleazy politician taking kickbacks from concrete contractors in one form or another. Upon hearing about a practical child and marriage counselor who had an affair, a wise person told me yes, but did he provide good counsel? So if a person cannot live to their teachings, is the teaching effective? If Bill Hybels converted and brought meaning to thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people within the Willow Creek Church, does his later condemnations, does his later, I don't know, humanity take away from that? Does the fact that Dr. Phil, the king of marriage counseling, went through a nasty divorce means his guidance is irrelevant? Is it either good advice from a flawed figure or is it rank hypocrisy? In other words, is their very teachings not really effective because it wasn't applicable to their own lives? To me, I think that the artist sometimes needs to be divorced from the art. If the preaching is effective and does bring actual meaning to somebody's life, then there is an effectiveness to that. But the belief in that individual, the belief that somehow they have the answers, the belief that somehow this person is the one that I should always listen to, even when another part of my brain is telling them that I'm wrong, that is is where the danger lies. Now, a sound argument could be made that Augustine of Hippo was the third most important figure in Christian history, right behind Paul of Tarsus and Jesus. One Augustinian university, Villanova, known better for their basketball program than for their linkage to a Catholic saint, provides this view of Augustine. Quote, Augustine spent the last 40 years of his life trying to be faithful to his baptism. He returned to North Africa in 388 CE and set up a small community of dedicated Christian laymen in Tagosti. Its purpose was the study of scripture and mutual service while living a life somewhat withdrawn from the hurly-burly of the world. Unfortunately, this peace and quiet were not to last very long. In 391, he made the mistake, as he calls it, of going to Hippo to interview a candidate for his little community. One day, seeing him in the church, the people demanded that he be ordained their priest. He accepted on the condition that he could continue his community. This he did, and from that community he began his service to the people of Hippo. In three hundred ninety five CE, he was consecrated their bishop, and in that position he spent the last thirty five years of his life. Unquote. Augustine was the first historical figure to write what we would call an autobiography, and one of the telling and overview used lines. one of the telling and overused lines from Augustine's writings was quote, Lord made me a Christian, but not yet. Unquote. It was not that Augustine was not a true believer in the manner of, let's say, Herbert Gregg, but rather that he knew the path he should be taking and that he was just not up to it. In the 1970s Smash TV show MASH, two of the characters, Hawkeye and Honeycutt, are trying to enact revenge on a third, their roommate, the bombastic Charles Winchester, by not bathing. Their Odorous efforts earn them banishment from the mess tent, and while eating outside the company, chaplain Father Mulcahy stops by, but he will not eat with the reeking doctors like the rest of the company. Upon being told that Jesus ate with lepers, Mulcahy states, quote, he was an exceptionally good sport, Augustine was not made of the same quality as Jesus but then he was open with his struggles in a way different from the aforementioned American megachurch founders. For them, religion is not something to live up to or fail, but rather a product like a car or a bar of soap that leads them to riches. And like Augustine, the issue comes when they fall short. It is akin to learning that Mike Lindell secretly sleeps using good pillow instead of his own product. But one of the appeals of Augustine was his struggles and how open he was with it. And that would resonate with the average person. Jesus is who Christians wish to be, but Augustine is who they really are. When a historian runs a survey from the earliest civilizations to the beginnings of empire in the Western Hemisphere, there is one common theme. The ruler is almost always claiming the divine. Egyptian pharaohs to Japanese emperors believe they were descended from the gods. Well, as did Julius Caesar, The Bourbon kings of France believed they ruled with the blessings of God. Ferdinand and Isabel were not just Catholic majesties, but the most Catholic majesties. From a political point of view, this makes absolute sense. Every government needs to derive some form of legitimacy. Prior to the advent of civilization itself, legitimacy more than likely came from size, strength, and the cunning of whoever claimed rulership. And this is easy when the community numbers in a few dozen and all the members have a personal relationship with the ruler. But how does it work, let's say, along the Yellow River when a Chinese farmer may only glimpse the ruler from afar or never at all? The answer lies in making the ruler more than just a human. The Mandate of Heaven, Tianming, also known as Heaven's Mandate, was the divine source of authority and the right to rule for China's early kings and emperors. The ancient god or divine force known as heaven or sky had selected this particular individual to rule on its behalf on earth. Because so much of Japanese culture was influenced by the Chinese, their emperors too claimed the mandate of heaven as late as 1945. However, once the Americans had conquered Japan in World War II using the atomic bomb, the concept of the emperor had to change. Many wanted him deposed, but a compromise was enacted. Here is a 1945 description of what happened. Quote, a new role for the son of heaven. Emperor Hirohito of Japan is no longer divine. As a human constitutional monarch, he has become a symbol of stability for a nation groping for new standards, a new role for the son of heaven, unquote. Now, did all of these rulers genuinely believe they were descended from gods or believe that God had anointed their rule? For example, Gaius Julius Caesar claimed that he was descended from the gods, though he did not believe he was one himself. Now, upon his death, Romans, for many reasons, claimed that he was in fact a god. Not the least was his great nephew and adopted son Octavian, later Augustus. Not a bad form of legitimacy to claim to therefore be the son of a god. Yet one of Augustus's successors, Caligula, genuinely believed he was a god. Presumably gods are immortal, so given the fact that his own praetorian guards later murdered him after a tumultuous four-year rule, I think we can safely conclude that Caligula was not in fact a god. Now despite this, emperor worship continued after Caligula because the PR aspect was just simply too powerful. However, one of the tricks is to deify the person after they are gone and their more heinous acts forgotten. Unfortunately, as I move into middle age, I begin to attend more funerals. And with perhaps the odd joke, the virtues are extolled and the vices omitted. And this is fitting, given that funerals are for the living, and little is accomplished by post-life trashing but the vast majority of humanity are not powerful, are not historical figures. Martha Washington famously burned her letters from George, anathema to the historian, but probably effective in maintaining our leading founder's iconography. I mean, do we need to read Washington making snide accounts about Adam's insufferableness or alluding to his fellow Virginians' escapades in France? The goal was to show the best light of Washington to the world. Was this akin to the stage management or false claims to the divinity of earlier heads of states? No, because the facts showed genuine aspects of Washington's character. Think about this. The one place Washington truly loved to be was Mount Vernon. And unlike most of the other founding fathers, he was actually a pretty good farmer and business person. But he spent eight years sacrificing during the American Revolution, eight years away from home. Then another eight years, remember that the Capitol was not on the Potomac until Adam's day, another eight years in New York City as the first president. Washington made the necessary sacrifices, and therefore we have these facts, and therefore his iconography is genuine. Lincoln today is rightly celebrated as the great emancipator. The reality was that he both advocated a return to Africa, of the slave population, something both logistically and morally a terrible prospect. He also would have allowed the southern states, in the short term, to have kept their slaves in 1861. Whatever long-term plans for eliminating slavery, and he must have had them, it was the preservation of the Union that was foremost in his early days. But the Confederacy was going to keep their slaves and do so, as an independent entity, forcing Lincoln's hand. Again, we remember these things, we study them, but this does not change the facts that Lincoln oversaw and directly enacted the Emancipation Proclamation, the destruction of the rebellion, and the enactment of the 13th Amendment. Donald Trump has pulled off the incredible feat of hiding his goodness and putting his often odious nature on display during his presidency. Yet for such a tempestuous attitude, his family, all of them, still claim allegiance his second wife, Martha Maples, went on TV pop show Dancing with the Stars and extolled his virtues. It was kind of really bizarre. And Before one states that just demonstrates the grasping and unscrupulous nature of his family, consider how many wealthy and powerful figures command the devotion of their entire families. Ronald Reagan is one of the greatest presidents of the 20th century, but oversaw dysfunction and acrimony in his family. Yet this demonstration of filial piety was not enough to blunt Trump's sometimes misguided attacks, nor his actions following the November 2020 loss of the presidency. It is odd to see George W. Bush at various state functions, often funerals, sitting there sharing candies with Michelle Obama. In 2007, her husband, Barack Obama, stated, quote, This president may occupy the White House. But for the last six years, the position of leader of the free world has remained open. And it's time to fill that role once more. In an article in 2010, it was noted that, quote, Obama cranked up his indictment of the GOP in Ohio this week, criticizing the just-say-no crowd and the Republicans' selective memory of the economy in January 2009, unquote. Yet, this has not deterred his wife and Bush from becoming friends. Did she believe that Bush was ineffectual both abroad and at home? Or was that just her husband's rhetoric? Now, in this case, it might be easy to split whether Michelle Obama had a true belief in Bush's uh, mismanagement of the presidency. After all, one can disagree with certain policies and criticize them and still like the person. That's still possible. But what happens when a person's ideology is their true defining characteristic. After all, George W. Bush had many different aspects to his personality. But Bernie Sanders? Bernie Sanders pretty much has one. And that is his socialist belief system. But does he truly believe in it? He owns three properties and provides 2% of his earnings to charity annually, something well below the average of Republicans. Now, perhaps this squares with socialism because that system is redistributive and does so with the coercion of the state, not through a personal choice like charity. But Sanders' socialism is founded on helping the poor, the oppressed, the victims, yet he does not personally adhere to that principle in his private life. Is the difference between a true believer the difference between sacrifice and hypocrisy? Awful things can be done in the name of true believing. Did Hitler honestly believe that the Jews represented a threat to the success of the German people? At some point, he must have, given the horrific things that were done under his auspices. Did Mao honestly believe that his agricultural reforms would benefit the Chinese people instead of resulting in the deaths of 40 million Chinese peasants? I think we can say with a degree of certainty that Stalin's murder of millions of Cossacks probably had nothing to do with his belief system and everything to do with his desire to hold power over the Soviet state. But none of these figures were murdered and the last two died in their beds. Is that the difference? Putting oneself in mortal danger as did Herbert Gregg? I would not think it has to go that far, but there is a direct correlation between giving something up of high value and the beliefs upon which those sacrifices are made. Now, Vince Lombardi... The Hall of Fame coach for the NFL's Green Bay Packers once said, quote, perfection is not attainable, but if we chase perfection, we can catch excellence, unquote. In his beliefs, Herbert Gregg is probably as close to perfection as one can be. Thank you again for listening to another Conservative Historian podcast. Please check all of them out on our Brow Sprout site and on our main website, www.conservativehistorian.com. This is Bell Avis. Thanks again for listening.